This is the On The Touchline Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. Want to save 10% on your next order from duketigbrand.com? Go there now, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com, and use the promo code BROADWATER19, B-R-O-A-D-W-A-T-E-R-1-9, at checkout and save 10% on your next order. So it is important as a coach that you have the right equipment to do your job. You might worry about soccer balls, you might worry about cones, pennies, goalkeeping equipment, etc. However, where do you put all your notes and all your thoughts in one place? I use the Dukig brand XL and their 2.0 planner on a weekly basis. And I can't recommend their product enough. DukeTigBrand.com, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. And upon checkout, use the promo code BROADWATER19. This is a special episode of the On the Touchline podcast. One of the perks of living here in the Pittsburgh area, I've had a chance to get to know Randy and Ben Waldrum of the University of Pittsburgh Women's Program. And if you've listened to other podcasts, uh, you're probably familiar with Randy. Um, He's quite media friendly. Uh, But I wanted to do something a little bit different where I actually had Randy and Ben in the same room and had a chance to interview both of them at the same time. So it wasn't that long ago that I went to the University of Pittsburgh's campus, uh, went to the Fitzgerald Fieldhouse and actually sat down in Randy's office with both Randy and Ben. And Ben was finishing up a recruiting call, joined our conversation, and we talked for roughly an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, Folks, if you're you're not familiar with Randy and Ben, you're going to absolutely love both of them. Both are charming, both are interesting, and both absolutely love the game of soccer. People have asked me from time to time, hosting this podcast, if I have a favorite interview or if there's something that's sort of memorable, uh, you know, along the way in two seasons of doing this. And I'll say this much, every guest that we've had on has been interesting, has been fantastic in their own way. Yes, there are guests uh, that are probably more memorable in terms of some of their experiences or their stories. And this particular interview is definitely one of those that I will always remember. And I can't thank Randy and Ben enough just for their time, their attention, and even their willingness to help other coaches in our game. Uh, I know a number of coaches that I've been connected to that have had a touch point with Randy uh, and Ben at some point along their coaching journey. And if you're ever in the Pittsburgh area, I, include, I encourage you to hit them up to attend a training session or watch one of their matches. Um, they really have the best interest in the game, uh, first and foremost. So always remember that. I hope you enjoy this special bonus episode, Season 2, Episode 9, my conversation with Randy and Ben Waldrum of the University of Pittsburgh Women's Soccer Program. Uh, yeah, Randy and Ben Waldrum, thank you so much for your time. And um, first, I, I just want to say that I'm a, a big fan of both of you. Uh, 
not only what you do in social media, <laughs> but uh, your actual coaching. Yeah. So uh, very much appreciate your time and um, know your schedules are busy. I was mentioning earlier that, um, you know, uh, one of my dreams as a, as a dad and as a, as a soccer coach would be to coach with my son someday. And, um, you know, not typically the, the question that I start most interviews off with, <laughs> um, because obviously the circumstance is, is unique. But um, I'm curious what that is like for both of you. Um, and, you know, knowing that you've worked together twice, yeah. uh, you know, Notre Dame and Pitt now. Yeah. So. Yeah. Actually, three times. Okay. You know, yeah, that's right. You count Trinidad and Tobago. Okay. The women's national team with that qualifying process. So, yeah. Yeah, it's been a few times. And uh, I don't know, I mean, recently, too, with, with his experience in the NWSL, he we actually worked for rival MLS clubs. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> right. And we played each other a couple times against each other with that, too. So it's... Uh, that, that also gives you a different perspective mm -hmm. uh, on things, but I don't know. I mean, I guess I can tackle this here. I, I, I don't, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting being the son. I don't, I don't even know if <coughs> how much it actually hits you until you kind of take a step back and mm -hmm. kind of reflect on it. And you know, I, I, I know my time at Notre Dame, and we were very, very successful there. I, I think being a younger coach in that time of my life, all I could think about was what's next for me. I kind of wanted to spearhead my own sure. program or, and go, go do something that, that I could put my stamp on. Um, but as I got older and we had the opportunity with Trans Tobago, I think that kind of hit me then, and we really got through that process 2014 and 2015. Um, from that point on, I just all I wanted to do was work with my dad again. You know, So I think that's kind of coming full circle as a young coach that kind of hit me you know and, and but you do you kind of have to think about it a little bit and, and, and reflect on it and um, you know how we got to this point I don't know you know I mean maybe my my advice to you is uh, break the uh, sugar packets out at dinner table and start talking <laughs> tactics I felt like that's what I was doing at 10 um, you know and, and so maybe a little you know subliminal brainwashing for you there would yeah, work uh, yeah. on that side of things but uh but certainly from a, you know, coaching education standpoint, I couldn't have asked for a better situation. And so, but, but yeah, I think it takes some time to kind of reflect and, and um, realize how special it is mm -hmm. to work with your dad because it doesn't, like you said, you, you don't see it a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, being a younger coach and being eager to lay your own groundwork, well, then it kind of hits you at some point to go, man, I just really wish I could work with my dad again. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. You know, we, it's, it's funny. <clears throat> From the father standpoint of it, and I'm sure you're facing some of this now, is <clears throat> trying to figure out how do you you love the game so much? How do you give that experience to your child mm -hmm. and hope that they follow that path? You know, we wouldn't have thought any different or loved him any less if he would have gone in another avenue altogether. Mm -hmm. But um, at a young age, you know, I, I didn't coach his team, and I can remember. Even at underage, you know, parents go on like, why don't you coach the team? Why don't you go? And I'm going, no, I'm just a parent. I want to enjoy it. And, and I always told his mom, you know, I always said, <clears throat> I don't want to be that guy, you know, that lives through him. I, I want him to want to, to play for me. Mm -hmm. And I said, until he asks, we'll just be parents. And I think finally when he hit about 10, he finally, you know, came up and said, hey, you, you coach everybody else. When are you going to coach my team, you know? And so I had the benefit of coaching him for a number of years. And, and um, you know, that has pitfalls as well, uh, both for the player 
and for the coach. Um, you know, you'll have parents that think he's playing because he's a son, and you have other, you know, and then, and then he gets that side of it from his peers. And, and the good thing I was lucky was he was a really good player, so it didn't take much justification to have him on the field. Uh, but I think as we, we got older and, um, you know, he started going from his playing days into his coaching days, I think certainly um, from the things I had done, he probably had a, a fairly good guide of, of, a, of a map how to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was ecstatic when he got to, uh, to Notre Dame. I have to, I have to take a step back, too, and say, uh, and this may or may not happen with your son, but we did get the opportunity on a few occasions to actually play together. Mm. And I got to tell you a quick story. <laughs> we, the first time we actually played together, we were in this bandit Mexican league in, in Texas. And uh, we're getting our first game together and play and into the second half and <clears throat> Ben gets into it with another player. And the next thing you know, they're, they're both tossed. And, and uh, <laughs> about 15 minutes later, next thing you know, I'm tossed. So we're, we're probably only father and son that both got red cards in yeah. the same game the first time we ever played together. So uh, I'm not sure how good or bad that really is. Uh, but I, I think that is an interesting story. Yeah. But uh, Well, I'll even add to that. That that story is, I think <coughs> I must have been 15, 16 years old at the time. And we're playing this, you know, I think a it was like a, a men's league. Yeah. And uh, I, I want to say, you know, it was kind of one of those, you know, let's toughen them up. Let's throw them into this men's <laughs> league. And sure enough, first five, ten minutes, I'm like trading trading punches with uh, somebody in the game. Now, neither of us landed a punch. So it's, uh, it wasn't a, a high-level fight by any stretch of the imagination. But, but yeah. You kind of look back and go, okay, well, let me tough him up a little bit. And I just remember sitting in the car, and literally 15 minutes later, he comes and sits in the car, you know, and just yeah. go, well, what, what, what happened to you? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it definitely has to be uh, has yeah. to be a father-son moment. Yeah, that's uh, probably a first and only yeah. for a father-son. Yeah, definitely, but, uh, definitely. You know, when we got to Notre Dame and I had the opportunity to bring him on board, he had just finished his pro playing career and had kind of had a little bit of a knee injury. So I just said, well, you know, you thought about coaching. Yeah, I want to coach. And he'd been tinkering with it a little bit anyway on the side. And, and um, so we brought him in. And, you know, part of it, you want to help spearhead their career. You, we all want to take, we're always going to take care of our kids. And so uh, we wanted to do that for him and give him that opportunity. But, you know, I'll say it in front of him, and I probably don't tell him this enough, but, uh, you know, he's turned into a really, really good coach. And, he, I found early on he really had a great niche for not only what he can do on the field, but his recruiting was top of the charts, you know. And, mm-hmm. and we had a spell of four or five of the years he was there that we had top five recruiting classes pretty much every year. And I think we went to the Final Four every year and, and, and won a national championship together. Uh, but I think over the years it's been fun to see him grow and develop as a coach because I think it was good when he left Notre Dame to go out on his own uh, to take some of the things that hopefully I had passed on to him, mm-hmm. uh, but he needed to go. It was a good time for him to go and try to um, experience some of it his own. And and you know this from being at the club level. There's really probably not a better learning tool in this country. We've all done it. I, mm-hmm. I started out that way mm-hmm. myself, uh, along with high school coaching. But you wear so many hats as a club coach. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not only the coach, but you're you're the manager and. And then you're also that buffer with parents because you're dealing with young kids and, mm-hmm. and, and you're dealing with their academics and you're de- you, it's the whole gamut of everything. Mm-hmm. So he went off and ran his own clubs and um, I think that experience really got him prepared 
to come back. And I think he's, mm-hmm. after, no, I can't speak for Ben, but I think mm-hmm. after a number of years, he kind of missed the college game. And mm-hmm. I think club soccer in this country can really wear on you. If your heart and soul mm-hmm. is fully immersed in it, sure. it's it's taxing, as you well know. And I'm preaching to the choir here. I know that. <laughs> yes. But um, I think at that point, it was kind of like, you know, I, I want to get back in the college game. And then when this door opened, for me, it was a no-brainer. The other thing with my staff, I always feel it's important that my staff is loyal, trustworthy, mm-hmm. that I know is going to kind of out in the public is going to have your back. We can always have our differences behind closed doors. Um, but I know I've always got that with him, mm-hmm. you know. And our philosophies, obviously, growing up in the same house for so many years, the way we envision the game to be played is the same. So it was really a no-brainer um, when this opportunity came just to give him a call and say, hey, are you, you mm-hmm. up for making a move? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, good pivot or uh, we'll call it a Cruyff turn. Right? Okay. How, since this is a, uh, a soccer conversation. Um, tell me about your philosophy and, uh, you know, it, how I view the game. You're talking about the, uh, you know, sugar packets or mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. things at a dinner table. And I feel like I had a moment like that yesterday, uh, last mm-hmm. night at dinner with my son mm-hmm. and, you know, moving stuff around. And we had, had been out in the backyard, um, you know, prior to dinner. And so uh, I'm curious how that philosophy was formed and then how you sort of came together to say, wow, we actually look at the game similarly, uh, you know, in that regard. Well, I, for me, I've always had a, I've always been able to have a picture in my mind of what I want the game to look like. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it was me obviously being older than all of you guys I was brought up at a time when the sport was really in its infancy in this country and um, didn't have access to seeing it like, you know, we can see it every day now on television and, 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 and to see it grow the way it's grown. So I didn't have a lot of teams in, in my youth that I could emulate because we just didn't see it much. Mm-hmm. Uh, the old NASL was probably the only thing we really got to see on a regular basis, the old Dallas Tornado, when we would watch those games. But I was always intrigued by the skill part of the game. You know, players that could do things with the ball. Mm-hmm. I was lucky to play for a, a coach from Mexico uh, that showed and taught us how to handle the ball and put a priority on the technical piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, that probably helped formulate my idea about skillful players and, and then what little we could see about the World Cups when they would mm-hmm. come around. and. And, and to watch those early Dutch teams in the 70s or Argentina in the 78 World Cup or mm-hmm. those those teams that had some flair and, and, and obviously the skill set. So I've always just felt like the game should look skillful because that's what makes it attractive. I never enjoyed watching the teams that just kind of the English football in those early years that just kind of lumped the ball forward, you know, and wasn't until I got to see Gascoigne play for England that I got to see, well, this is a guy that's actually got some flair, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or George Best, you know, had that sure. as well. Um, so <clears throat> I, it's one of those things that I just felt like that's kind of how I started the basis mm-hmm. of the way I wanted the game to look. And then once I really got into being an older player and seeing teams around the country play different parts of the country, uh, playing a little bit in the pros. It wasn't by any means a big pro career of mine, but seeing a little bit at the pro level. Um, and then when I started coaching, you know, then I started to develop this idea that 
the game still hadn't grown and exploded the way, you know, in my time we were always saying 10 years from now, mm-hmm. wait 10 years. And, and I was looking at it and we were 20 or 30 years down the road and it had grown, but not like the explosion that we've seen in recent years. And so I, I just said, we have to play attractive soccer to draw crowds. So not only we're we trying to develop a team to play a certain way, we're trying to develop the team to play that way because we need to present it publicly that way to grow the game, mm-hmm. not just... So I've always felt like, a, and I feel that way here at Pitt, we need to change the way this team has played for years. We need to be an attractive team, not only to put fans in the, the stands and not only be successful in the ACC, mm-hmm. but to help grow the women's game in particular uh, they're not going to come watch us if we bunker in and play. So my philosophy has kind of evolved just over the years of how I think the game should look. Mm-hmm. But I've always had a pretty clear idea, and I think I've always been pretty good about being able to relay that to our players. And I think Ben can speak to yeah, his, sure. I, you know, how it came for him. Yeah, you know, no, I think obviously, you know, he had a huge influence, you know, on, on that piece. Um you know, I even take it back <clears throat> a little bit more, even my own playing background, and, and certainly we're not big people by any stretch of the imagination, so you had to have something that you you did really, really well. So the technical piece for me, I spent countless hours with the ball and, and training on my own and mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> was fortunate enough to, to have a pro career in, in, in the Mexican First Division and also in, in, in Denmark and Europe. So I, I had the ability where I played for a lot of very good coaches um, that saw value in me, and, and that value was certainly on the technical piece of it. So I always kind of found teams that probably played a little bit more soccer mm-hmm. um, versus it's just solely on athleticism or other factors in the game. Um, so I think that that was a big influence on me. And then growing up in the Dallas area, it's a pretty Latin-heavy culture and a lot of skillful players and teams that play that certain way. And so I think that kind of had factored into kind of our – overall vision here and, and kind of helped shape me um, for my own philosophy on how the game should look. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I probably equated a, a lot, obviously, to him, but but also my own playing background. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I do think the, the positive here, and I think how well our recruiting went from Notre Dame to even now here at Pitt, and I, I'd even say here at Pitt it's gone uh, better than any of us could have ever imagined um, when we first arrived here. Um, but it is that clear messaging on what we feel like the game should look like. And I think that's probably, you know, I'll tell this to anyone. If you you look at all the coaches um, across the college game, I I truly think I work for the best one. And I know I'm biased because it's my dad, but I don't think I've ever seen anybody be able to communicate and message the way he feels like the game should be played to the players Mm -hmm. and how that relates. And that messaging is, it's, you know, it's synergistic. It's it's clear. It's it's. He sometimes he, the way he says things or does something in training, you know, paints this this perfect picture. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's probably um, why he's had a lot of success, obviously. But I do think it helps us in all factors. You know, from the recruiting piece especially, because that's really kind of your lifeblood in college mm-hmm. uh, athletics here. And so, um, I think knowing that has certainly helped us be very very successful in the recruiting trail. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, on that, Jason, because over the years to watch this relationship grow from, from the work standpoint, um, I saw what his capabilities were in recruiting at Notre Dame, but I probably had a little bit, I worked with him more at Notre Dame on the recruiting piece, mm-hmm. and, and, and yet 
he was still largely responsible for a lot of those top kids we got. Here it's been really nice because after seeing him grow as a coach, I've really turned the recruiting over to him. I mean, it, it's to a point where the success we're having here at Pitt with our recruiting right now has, like he said, has been so much better than we've ever imagined mm -hmm. at this quick of a time. Um, but I know he knows what I'm looking for, so I trust if he brings me a player, I'm good. I know it's I know it's going to fit, and that's a big big plus because a lot of times you have a staff that, you know, you you have to teach them it takes a little bit more time to get them on the same page with you to understand and mm -hmm. and so having somebody that's kind of in sync with you on that area I'm just feeling like he's bringing me the players and I'm just trying to help close the deal you know and mm -hmm. and now nine times out of ten he's already closed it before they get to me yeah. even but um but that's a big big advantage for us I think is you know he can even talk to Dustin our other assistant and they can be sharing ideas mm -hmm. and Ben can say to him no I know that's that's looking at this you know he'd rather have this mm -hmm. this quality in the player more so than that quality and mm -hmm. and it, it just helps us all having that kind of clear picture of what we're what we're looking for and how we're trying to move mm -hmm. forward with the program mm -hmm. well, I was going to say, if uh, if you were recruiting me, uh, obviously, uh, that uh, your energy is uh, it's infectious. Mm -hmm. I mean, just that alone, <laughs> yeah. I could see why a recruit would be interested. Yeah. Sure. Um, sure. I, I can very much see that you both believe in what you're doing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a, an authenticity and a genuineness about that that, um, you know, you're, I, mean, I, I don't know if I'd go as far as saying you're selling without selling, right? Yeah. That yeah. you believe in the product, you believe in what you're doing, yeah. and, you know, if you can fit into that as a player, you know, we'd love to have you. Yeah. So tell me what, describe that player. What does that person look like, um, you know, in terms of sort of attributes? Um, you know, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, playing the game with a, a little bit of flair and having, sure. yeah. you know, a, a very beautiful product on the field. But what does that look like when you go out and recruit uh, a player? You know, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great question because, I know we talked about this before we got on the podcast, just about club soccer in general. You know, you, you can find a lot of good players across the country. Um, you find good players in top youth teams. You find good players in very bad youth teams. You know, it's uh, mm -hmm. it's not always one and the same. Um, so I think kind of more when we're looking, uh, we kind of looked at two things. I think one was a need-based, obviously, coming in here and wanting to turn the program around right away. Um you know, I, I'll say this on record, we are very impatient people. Um, so so we, we didn't want this to be a five-year project. We wanted it to hit the ground running, which I think we did. So I think early on, I think maybe more of it is we're looking at players and maybe the difference between, all right, what does a kid look in Western PA versus Eastern PA? Or, you know, the kid we're going after in Dallas versus the kid in Western PA. Is, you know, there's a lot of talented players across the country so when we're looking at it, there's a lot of factors. I mean, how versatile is the player? You know, can they play multiple positions? I think that's a big one for us because, mm -hmm. yes, we have an idea of how exactly we we'll want to play, but we also know there's going to be some flexibility moments here in the first year or two as we transition to continue to build and bolster our roster. So it may be um, an outside back that can also play as a, as a wide forward, or it could be a central midfield player that could also play in center back spot if need be, or, mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be. So I think when we're looking at that stuff, I think one of the factors that really play into this is we do a really good job of doing our homework on the kid, you know, and um, how much does a kid, you know, have they kind of peaked is what you see is what you're going to get, or 
can you see them kind of just kind of starting to scratch the surface and are they going to be a better college player than they are a youth player? And, you know, I, I do think that takes a little bit of an eye. Um, the other thing, we, we refer to this kid all the time is, is she a soccer junkie? Mm. You know, do they love the game? Do they spend time on their own? I mean, you could even see it when you go, when we do this quite a bit, we, we'll go watch training session, you know, not just the game, but the training session piece. And you can you can tell their love for the game, their excitement about it. And so, you know, is a kid a soccer junkie? You know, and I think that's, um, I'm thinking players off the top of my head here in the area that we've gone after versus the ones that we haven't. And it's really been more of that kind of a, character-driven piece, what's internal in them, what, what makes, what drives them, how much time do they spend on their own, mm-hmm. you know, and you can kind of see that, and you can kind of see it in the evaluation process, if you go watch a kid the first time in summer, and then six months later, you go watch them, and they're the same, well, you know, that's that's a problem, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, we want to see continued growth, and, and um, we want to see kids that, that internally, they have that drive about them to continue to get better, and so... I'd say it's it's more of that than anything else. Yeah, that technical base is really important to us too. You know that they have that piece down right. It's um, you know if you equate it to other sports, I mean you hear people talk about the NBA all the time. How there's no pure shooters anymore, and they just dunk all the time. And I guess you can kind of relate that a little bit to our sport of a really skillful player versus somebody that's just more athletic. Mm-hmm. And I think what we've tried to do is over the years then kind of alluded to it a little bit we've had a really good eye for finding that kid that she may not in high school or with her club team be that national team that Mm -hmm. everybody's raving about her player but we see that ability in there that goes two years from now she's going to be really good Mm -hmm. and we make we were able to make our living with those kind of kids at Notre Dame. Carolina was always getting the national team kids, UCLA getting the national team kids, and at Notre Dame we were getting a couple of the national team kids, but Mm -hmm. we made our living on finding those kids that we go, this is her today, but this is what we project her to look like, you know, in a few years. And I think it all comes down to a little bit of that skill factor, you know, because players mature physically at different points and times of their lives, and... um, you know, I think we have to, and we have been very careful because every now and then we get, we get this kid that go, God, but she's a stud athlete, and then you come back, and you go, Yeah, but, you know, how many times in front of goal is she going to be able to do something with it? You know, because she's not skillful enough, she's not composed enough, and so we have to find that balance. But it, the, but the big piece of the balance is always the technical piece first. If they've got that foundation, then obviously you can look at athleticism and speed and strength and power and all those components and 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 the other thing ben was spot on with is the character of the kid you know how do they fit in with your team how do they buy in you know are they a team player versus an individual you know i I always say there's certain prima donna type players out there that if i were the tennis coach coaching singles that's who i want (laughs) but if i'm a team coach i might not want 11 of those prima donnas you know i want more team oriented players that are going to work and fight for each other and um, that's we've been lucky to to find those kind of kids and every now and then you'll get a bad apple here and there but uh, for the most part those are kind of the the benchmarks I think we look for. Good segue into the the question about culture Um, you know we talk about it at the at the youth level you know the academy level of I mean one bad apple could ruin a team right Um, you know, and that is that ego-driven player. Um, and I think probably all players are ego-driven to a certain extent, but they also understand that they fit into a bigger picture. Right. Um, 
knowing that this job, uh, you know, when you were offered it and accepted, that it was going to be a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. The success, um, you know, had sort of been on the de- decline. Um, how do you build that culture in a program that was, you know, in a very competitive league? Sure. Uh, how do you do that? Well, I, I think there's a lot of working pieces to that question. And one of the things is when we got here, there, there, every team has a culture. <laughs> so there was a culture. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't the right culture. You know, the kids didn't know how to win. They didn't know how to compete. Um, they didn't know what it took to work and train at the level that's required to play in the ACC. Mm-hmm. Not saying that we didn't have good kids, because the kids when we got here, the kids are great. Yeah. They're not. They're good people. They're good kids. They do everything we ask. They try. They they, they, they work for you and they try to give you what they had. But the, the culture wasn't in place because there was no clear-cut direction. You know, in talking to the players when we came, the first thing we did is we sat down with the players individually. Tell us about it. Tell us about the program. Tell us how you, what you did at train. We just got a lot of feedback on the way things were. And we found in looking at it, and this is not to slight the previous coaches or mm-hmm. the 22 years of history here, but we found that the players didn't know what the game looked like. They, they weren't given clear direction on how they wanted to play. The other thing is there was no holding them accountable for things that would go on within the program. So we, we found a lot of these issues. So we, you have to change that in the best way you can. And then the, the last piece of it was, quite frankly, as good as the kids are as kids, they just weren't good enough players for the ACC. Doesn't mean they're bad soccer players, doesn't mean there's not a place for them. It's just playing in the top conference in the country by far, by miles. It's not close. No disrespect to the Pac-12 or the Big Ten or any of those other conferences. Mm -hmm. It's not close when 10 of our teams are in the NCAAs and seven of them are in the final 16 and two of them are playing for the championship. That's kind of a normal year for the ACC. So the fact is the players that were here just weren't at the level to compete in that conference. So not only was the culture not in place um, and the the standards weren't in place, but the level of players weren't in place. Mm-hmm. So what we've really had to do is um, almost start over. We've had to kind of, we've worked with what we had. We've given those players the, the opportunities that we can. And, and now we've got to move forward with getting this program turn and the only way to start it is by bringing in players that are good enough to play in the in the conference mm-hmm. so we'll be bringing in 20 new freshmen this year or 20 new players mm-hmm. uh this year 17 new freshmen so far and i'm not sure we're quite done yet uh, <laughs> there's a couple more surprises that could be out there um but what that meant for a lot of the existing players here is they needed to go find a place where they could play mm-hmm. and we've helped them with that we've been very honest and open and upfront about where we saw them if they stayed moving forward. Mm-hmm. And most kids don't want to go somewhere where they're going to sit for four years right. or three years, mm-hmm. you know, or even two if they've been here and been playing and then all of a sudden they're going to go from playing all the time to not playing. So there's some, the hard part about coaching changes or how the new coaches in whatever sport it may be mm-hmm. views the way they want to play and do those existing players fit into that or not. <clears throat> so this is not new with what we've done here, but we've had to kind of change the players. But I think as we've spent this first year, we've also, without having our new players in here yet, 
we've had to kind of set the bar higher and the mm -hmm. expectation level higher in training every day. Mm -hmm. If you would have seen where we tested when we got here in January of our first year, how we tested in our fitness test compared to how we test this year before our season in the fall, you would be amazed at the increase. Mm -hmm. But it's because we pushed and we drove them and we didn't accept the excuses of why they couldn't reach those levels. Um, I think the other thing is you have to set the bar on what you expect for them as student athletes. You know, they're going to go to class. You know, they're going to do the right things off the field. You know, they're going to make good decisions with their life. They're going to represent the university the right way. They're going to be good character people and good teammates. And in addition to that, you know what, you're going to work your tail off, you know, when we're training because that's that's uh, that's what we're here to try to do is, is change. So we, we really spent a lot of time changing that culture. We're not close yet where it needs to be. We made big strides, Jason, but we're not close to where it needs to be. And so I think now moving forward with those players that will remain, because there will be a handful that will remain that were here before, mm -hmm. uh, with those players added to the new players that we're bringing in, we feel like it gives us a really good opportunity because we're going to be really young to kind of impose the standards, the expectations, and help develop that culture from a base, you know, when you, when you bring in so many new players. Um, but it's just one of those things of holding young people accountable, I think, is a big part of it. Yeah, no, I mean, he's right. We're, we're I think the, the current group that's here right now is starting to see the, uh, I guess, the grind of what it takes and in what most people call the off season. And I think that's continuing to change your messaging and that sort of thing. And, and for us, this really, we've, we've kind of tried to get them to embrace this. This is really our preseason period. It's our time to make our strength gains, our fitness gains, mm -hmm. uh, to improve individually with the ball. Um, so the, the expectation and level has been put on them um, in just their daily environment, everything they do from weights to stuff on the field to stuff in the classroom to, you know, making sure that uh, we're holding them accountable on the academic piece as well. So I think it is a, a little bit, I guess, of a culture shock uh, in some regards, but um, but I think they're starting to see what it what it takes to, to compete in, in the conference. And then certainly you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's a massive year for us with the numbers that are coming in, mm -hmm. um, but but it's exciting for us too because we, we will we get to to imprint our way and, and put our stamp on it and you know it's funny that you say um, you know impose your way and your, your your standards and we certainly tried to do that last fall um, knowing uh, kind of the way it had been it seemed like they even changed formation game to game and, and and almost adjusting to the opposition and never really talking about themselves and what they do well so we we kind of knew it was going to be a struggle even the first year because we we still tried to play the way we wanted to play and we knew we were going to get exposed and opened up and we did in some games <laughs> yeah. and uh you know sitting through those weren't weren't super enjoyable but i think it's all going to be uh worth it and rewarding in the end especially to see this new group not only the talent level but then really kind of getting to to lay lay the foundations of the culture and raising the overall standard it's it's um we're probably more anxious than I think the players are, mm -hmm. you know. He hit something that I think is great for young coaches. Um, just the way you speak and address your team uh, can have such an impact in doing things like changing the culture. But he kind of touched on it a little bit. But coming in, most colleges and universities around the country, the spring season is their off season. You know, everybody uses the term off season. Mm -hmm. 
<clears throat> we eliminated that from day one. And we said from January to August is preseason. Mm -hmm. If we're preparing for a World Cup, we're not preparing two weeks in August to go play in the World Cup. Right. Like a college season, that's mm -hmm. all we have is that two weeks. So we said, we've got to change your mindset. So everything we're doing from January on, this is preseason. And we want to load you and load you and build you and build you and build you up until August. Mm -hmm. And then when the kids come in in August, we're referring to that period as just rehearsal. So all that is now mm. is we're fit. We've been building for six or eight months, and now we're ready to go. Now let's bring in the new players. Those two weeks, it's rehearsal period. Now we don't have to beat them to death physically to try to get them in shape in two weeks, which you know you can't do. All sports science will tell you it's mm -hmm. a five- to eight-week project to even touch on making those improvements. So I think when most colleges are doing two and three a days and getting their players injured, mm -hmm. we're using that window of time, and we're getting quality training sessions, you know, once a day, and then we're in the classroom and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, team meetings and whatever else we need to do the rest of the day. But we're able to now just integrate the new players and use that as rehearsal period. And then, you know, and I think that just changing the terminology mm -hmm. changes the thought process, which addresses the culture. Mm -hmm. You take the word off season out of it, and all of a sudden it changes everything. Now, now it's not their spring where they can go, well, I can go drink a little and party a little bit and mm -hmm. practice a little bit and do a lot of other things because uh, it's off season. Now there's kind of like, oh, well, no, this is still a pretty important time of the year for me. Mm -hmm. This is my preparation. So just little things like that, we've, we've really tried to come in and change. Describe the, uh, I guess, the modern college athlete. Um, so I had interviewed probably someone that you know and have coached against, uh, Nikki Azzo-Brown, mm -hmm. uh, West Virginia. And um, I think she described it in a way that, uh, you know, before she used to just, you know, give them the brick. Now she has to gift wrap it, you know, <laughs> yeah. put a bow on it, yeah. uh, make uh, it look sparkly and pretty, yeah, yeah. And, uh, that sort of thing. And, you know, she was named coach at WVU. Sure. Oh, yeah. Mid we, we know Nikki well. Yeah. We, we love Nikki. Yeah. 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 She's yeah. done a great job. Yeah. Great um, job. How have you seen that? <clears throat> uh, knowing, you know, and obviously, you know, uh, the longevity in the college game for you, Randy, has been, you know, a little bit longer than you. Yeah, have, sure. But you've been in it two different times mm -hmm. in, um, you know, two different periods. And I would venture to guess, and don't want to put words in your mouth, <laughs> but this thing right here, technology, yes. yeah. has probably changed a lot. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious what that was like, you know, for you guys. Yeah. Gosh, I don't know. You've been this a lot longer, so your your scope's probably a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. But I, I will I will say even from from the first go around uh, to to now is is certainly uh, just even in communicating. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's trying to get a face to face conversation when somebody's looking in the eye. It can can be a chore sometimes. So I think yeah, obviously just with the information age and the time we're living in, it's it's uh, kids are changing. You know, parents are changing. So. Uh, you know, the one thing about it is I do think these players, you, you almost have to now, um, <clears throat> to kind of touch on what Nikki said, is, is you, you have to give them the why. They want to know why. Yeah. You know, it's not the coach says something and it's just that's what coach said, so we got to do it. It's, it's none of that anymore. You, you have to be extremely credible um, in what you're doing. And, um, you know, so I think that's, that's one area I think we're, we're – pretty good at is, is getting the buy-in of being credible and consistent um, with our messaging, and, and that's extremely important. But yeah, there's certainly a, a massive shift and change 
and how you're dealing with 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 players and even even issues that may pop up you know with mm-hmm. what's going on around the world i mean it's it's uh it is a very uh, interesting time frame and, and and certainly even in college athletics with all the amateurism argument and other factors going on and it just it's yeah you have to be um very very consistent and probably spend more time with players as you can and i think we kind of do that a couple different ways i mean we just um got a new technology we're using where you put a strap on the on the boot and uh it collects all kinds of data from your physical capacity what you do in training to how much you use your right foot left foot and, and really it's i hate to use the word gimmick because it's not because the information is extremely valuable but we're trying to continue to find ways where we can get kids into our office you know if they're coming in multiple times a week and you're consistently talking to them it could be very informal um but but to help continue to relay the message and help them guide them in making good decisions is you have to use the technology piece as a benefit mm-hmm. and, and why you're using it. So certainly all the information components with sports science and data is absolutely massive for just the modern coach in general. Uh, but I think even bigger picture is uh, you those interactions are opportunities to teach them how to communicate and mm-hmm. continue to get your consistent messaging across. So. Yeah, you, you've got to be a little bit clever and, and think outside the box on how to continue to get these kids in, in and around you and, and, and um, you know, get, get the point across to them, for sure. I think growing up, we've all heard it. Uh, it's very generational, but I can remember, you know, when I was little, my dad telling me, you know, the stories that you may have heard your grandparents say, I had to walk to school in the snow, you know, with no the shoes. Telephone and telephone yeah. on the bike, you know, all of that. And, and so, you know, my generation growing up, Oh, I had it so easy because my dad's generation was so hard, and now it's easy for my generation to say Ben's generation had it so easy, mm-hmm. and he's going to have the same conversations with his kids too as they go. So I'm not one of those that buys into the way it used to be. Things were so much better the way it used to be. But I do say that each of these generations, there are changes, and obviously, I think the the big the big difference for me being in it so long is the technology piece and the way our young people learn now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so different. I mean, uh, prior to email and all that, it's almost like I almost forgot how did we even exist before that now, you know. And and the kids now are on it so much that, that it, it's got to be technology-driven. And um, the teaching methods that we use, and Ben mentioned a little bit of the resources that we just that we now have to, to bring that technology to the players, Um but I do think there has been some things lost with this generation that we're working with, and I think that is the ability to actually communicate because mm-hmm. I think we all see kids now that are downstairs and text mom in another room, is dinner ready, mm-hmm. you know, or they come to the dinner table and, <coughs> and um, you know, everybody's on their phone instead of actually having a conversation. And, and it's, it's just the world we live in right now, and so I don't think our kids have honed in the ability to really verbalize, you know, what's going on with them. I think the other piece of it that I've seen is, and I don't, I'm not sure that this is generational or if it's more of just guilt on maybe even my generation of the way the parenting changed Hmm. from disciplining, being so stern from when I was little Mm -hmm. to now all of a sudden you can't lay a hand on your kid or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be, we've changed a little bit in that I think some of the young people today aren't as accountable as years prior 
and hopefully we get back to a little bit of more of that with his kids and my grandkids, you know, that they're held a little bit more accountable. But for whatever reason, this particular baby boomers generation or whatever term you want to put on it, mm-hmm. um, the kids today I don't think are as, as accountable. And I don't necessarily mean that in always a bad way, but I think parents are solving more of their kids' problems instead of kids learning how to solve their problems. You know, the one thing I always appreciated my dad for was if I came home complaining about my soccer or practice or my coach or my playing time, it was never, I'll listen and I'll go deal with it. Mm-hmm. It's, go talk to your coach, mm-hmm. you know, and I always appreciate that. Never got involved. That wasn't his field. Mm-hmm. If I wanted to talk to him about his business, what mm-hmm. he did for a job, okay, he'll deal with me. But, And I don't think that's happening today. So I think sometimes we see our younger players today can't solve some of the problems that they're up against mm-hmm. on and off the field, you know. So that's probably the biggest change. I think so to Nikki's point, to Ben's point, I do think you have to really wrap it all up and you have to give them, you have to spoon feed them all of the information, mm-hmm. you know, and you have to, and as Ben said, it's an inquisitive group, which is great. I don't mm-hmm. think there's anything wrong with that, mm-hmm. but they do want to know why. Mm-hmm. Wait, yeah. why, why do we have to, well, okay, here's where my generation was, Coach said, get on the line. We got on the line. Yeah. You know, there was no why. There was no, none well, of that. I, my U10 boys, they ask why. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Quite, yeah. quite often. Yeah. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, sure. we, we look at this as a collaborative effort between the coaches and the team. We never, and actually when we talk to the team, it's never, I want you doing this, or it, it's my team, you're going to do it my, mm-hmm. it's always, it's our team. Mm-hmm. Give me some input. Mm-hmm. How can we do it better? Mm-hmm. How can we get, how did you like that? Did that work for you? Did you understand what, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's all about this effort as a team. And that's the way we've handled it, whereas my generation was more, I'm the coach, you do what I say. Mm-hmm. You know, the kind of old Lombardi, yeah. you know, kind of, right. you just did what they said and you never questioned it. And mm-hmm. so, there's it, that doesn't make this generation bad. It just makes it different. Mm-hmm. And so, we have to adjust to those times as well. Mm-hmm. And... Um, get them in more and communicate more and there's even some teaching to the players there's a lot of times we get the players and go hey so-and-so look at me yeah you know yeah, when we're having this exactly. conversation no look at me yeah okay get your head up and see me I'm, I'm not, you know i'm not gonna bite your head off you're not in trouble but i want you to look at me when i'm talking to you so yeah. it's just that the communication piece i think and how we do it is massive in yeah. today's uh with today's tent players. It is. I will even say even kind of the, the youth component. What's interesting about you saying you 10 boys are asking you why. Um, again, the, the being inquisitive isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think it actually gives you some, some very good teaching moments and ways you can get them to develop a more of a love for the game by watching some games, mm-hmm. you know, and putting that ownership back on them and just mm-hmm. say, you know, you tell me why, you know, why is this important? Yeah. You, you know, and, and, and I think you can actually uh, create an environment where a lot of growth takes place. So I do think it's, um, yeah, for all the negatives to it, I also think there's a huge mm-hmm. positive component. And then, too, as coaches, you get to find out a little bit about yourself and, and, and uh, kind of do some reflecting on, you know, of is there a different way I can get my message across or, mm-hmm. you know, of, of understanding how maybe you're coming across and how they feel about it sometimes is not necessarily a negative thing. I think you can learn a lot. Uh, from that so it is it's just probably different 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'd say more than anything, it's just probably different. But uh, I will say their capacity to learn is is, is pretty high, mm-hmm. uh, especially yeah. using all the technology and all the different resources that you can use um, and stuff with the phone. I mean, how, I know we did this at um, FC Dallas. Is it, you know, we, we with our development academy program with our players, it was pretty easy to cut film mm-hmm. and just text it over to them. Mm-hmm. You know, we both have the app, and then all of a sudden they can pull up their clips and do some self evaluation and critiquing and that sort of thing. And I always thought that was beneficial, but yeah. uh, but so it is. It's interesting. Well, and I was going to say, I mean, we do a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, coaches. So prior to getting into the club, I mean, coaches thought I was crazy that I would film training sessions, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, with a travel team or uh, you know, a rec team or a grassroots yeah. team or whatever, and. Um, one, I, I want to get better yeah. right. uh, as a coach. So it's part of my own self-analysis of sure. listening to my cadence. And right. am I saying it in a clear, concise, sure. you know, not overly <laughs> verbose mm-hmm. manner? Um, but two, also looking at, you know, are they taking the information I'm giving them? And mm-hmm. are they being yeah. able to apply it? And, uh, you know, something that I often say and, and really believe in that, I mean, coaching is so much an art and a science, mm-hmm. right? You need data. Uh, you sure. need to know movements. You need to know... You know how much a player's traveling during a match, um, are they hitting it with the right foot, left foot? You know, whatever. That's really important. Mm-hmm. But it's also that the human psychology of it. And I feel, you know, for us as coaches, probably more than ever, we're a teacher, we're a friend, we're a mentor. Yeah. We can be fatherly to them <laughs> when right. we need to be. Yeah. We can be tough love. Sure. Uh, you know, when a player needs it. And I think the the ultimate challenge is figuring out when to put the pedal down yeah. or to ease up on the you know ease up on the gas sure no I, I think that's definitely just it's just a changing of the time and it's a little bit of a different um, young player that we're dealing with now and but that's the fun part of coaching isn't it that we get right. to be all of those things and um, you know and have an impact and an influence on on young people's lives and um, you know, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't trade what we do for anything. Mm-hmm. So, uh, knowing the line of work you're in is stressful. It's fun. It's chaotic. It's you know, burning the candle at both ends mm-hmm. in terms of late nights, early mornings. How do you take care of yourself and you know, stay relevant uh, as the game continues to evolve? As you know, how we communicate, how players interpret information. Um, how do you take care of yourself? Well, for me, I'm probably a little bit different uh, just from an age standpoint with with Ben and, and his young family that he's also got to, to, to manage through this. But, um, you know, my background is in teaching. So I've um, I, my degree is in education. So I, I just I've always said this to people that's asked, but I just feel like as coaches, we're a teacher with a whistle. You know, that's just kind of the easiest way I can put it. And so um, I love that part of it. So I'm also, because of that background, I'm also of the understanding that I don't have all the answers, even as long as I've been in this game. The game has changed so much. As you well know, depending on a World Cup cycle, this formation may be the the, the flavor of the the year. The next cycle, it's a different formation, and there's a different... So the game, because it is evolving, we have to evolve. So coaching education for our young coaches out there never stops. If it, if it stops, you will become stagnant. You will become that coach that's just kind of going through the motions, you know. And so I've always had a love for just staying on top of whether it's reading, whether it's watching video, whether it's watching documentaries, whether it's reading books or, mm-hmm. you know, getting online and seeing what's out there. I just think 
that's what makes me tick. So um, that part for me is always, I've always had the idea of going, I can come to one of your sessions, even with your young boys, Jason, and I'll pick something up. And I go, I like how he did that. Mm -hmm. I'm not one of those coaches that goes, I've been in this for 30 years. What am I going to learn from you? Mm -hmm. I just have never had that view. And so anytime coaches have asked me about it, yeah, I'll help. But I'm helping you because I want to hear what you have to say too because there might be something that you do that's going to help me you know so if we are open-minded about that we'll continue to grow as coaches and that keeps us relevant that keeps you on top of the cutting edge of what's going on out there I think in terms of how do you make sure that you stay healthy and fresh and I think each of us in our own way has to find an escape whether that's a few hours here or there or whether that's you're going at it and you're going at it and you're going at it and then all of a sudden there's two or three days I just got to get away from it mm -hmm. and I got to be done with it and I don't want my phone ringing I don't want to think about it and you know so I think every coach is probably a little different in how they handle that mm -hmm. um, and f fortunately for me I'm usually more of that I go 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 and then you find this little window that you don't really we're on spring break now so it's yeah. been a couple of days that we've been able to go you know what Let's just stay away from the office. And, you know, today was the first day we came in to do a few things. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, now I feel refreshed and I'm, I'm ready to go again. But yeah. I, I don't know how Ben's got other ways of doing it. No, I mean, actually, I think that's kind of a two-part question, right? I mean, your, your, your health and how you can kind of unwind. Um, you know, certainly I've got two young kids, so it's never a dull moment <laughs> in my house. So it's uh, really. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of fun times. Um, you know, at home, and like you said, it, spending a couple of days here and there and finding some, some windows of time where you just, you don't pick up your phone, you don't, you know, pay that much attention to it. I know for me personally, I, I make it a point every day to get up and do something physical, um, working out, running, lifting, whatever it is, but, but that's kind of my, uh, I guess, my time mm -hmm. um, where I can kind of mentally drift away and, and do what I need to do to, to recharge the batteries. Um so I do think that's important. Um, kind of the second part, I guess, to your question about staying relevant and up to date with the times and that sort of thing. I will tell you, I have not seen a Premier League game in about two years. Mm. Um, you know, that, that used to be my time where I get up and, and watch the games, but now it's dominated by Paw Patrol and uh, other cartoons yeah. on TV. Oh, All right, <laughs> we're so living the same life. Yeah. <laughs> so, if you, so if you if you try to change the channel, is somebody's having a meltdown somewhere? So, um, so it's it's a, it's one of those where it's a little bit of a challenge to to uh, maybe stay more uh, current on on just world tactics and and what teams and what the, the trends are doing. But you know, I think kind of knowing how important the coaching education piece has been for me personally. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's, it could be as simple as hopping out and going, hey, I'm going to take the session today. Give me a little bit of feedback, you know, on the mm -hmm. session. I think doing a lot of that helps me. Um, getting out and uh, I've kind of spent some time here recently getting out and working with some of the uh, local teams and different age groups and that mm -hmm. sort of thing, which is always presents a different challenge, and I think that that always helps and continue to practice your craft. Um you know, for the last several years, I've, I've been uh, coaching with FC Dallas and, and, you know, really with their Development Academy. It was ECNL before that and then the Development Academy after that. But uh, we had access to the first team anytime we wanted. Mm. Uh, we had access to what the Boys Academy was doing, and it's arguably one of the best in the country. And, mm -hmm. and seeing what coaches like Oscar Pereira is doing and Chris Hayden and, and those those kinds of coaches, Luchi Gonzalez, and seeing those guys work, 
um, it was always really, really refreshing and, and get you a little bit different perspective on things. And, and then just getting out and working and, and coaching different levels, different age groups. and Convention, going to the convention. Yeah, you've you got to find those niches and find ways to continue to, f- to, to model things. And like you said, it's, it's um, just getting out and observing sessions. It, it, can be, mm-hmm. it could be a dad. It's just coaching the team, and I tell you, we had we had one that I kind of grew up with that, that helped me with a, a really young team because it, it was like pulling teeth when I first kind of got back into the club scene. All of a sudden, I've got a U10 team I'm working with, and you can uh, imagine the challenge of coaching at Notre Dame. All of a sudden, you're now coaching a, a U10 team, and and then you turn around coaching a U19 boys team on top of that, and then after that, you turn around coaching you know a U16 girls team. So it's how those things kind of evolve and change, but. I mean, I had a parent coach working with me who who uh, was good for me at the time because he was very simplistic in his thought. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting here trying to give him, you know, uh, you know, the theory of uh, whatever. And, and, and they're, they're going, wait a second, coach. Let's, you know, let's keep this under wraps here. And so, um, yeah, I think you learn from, from all walks of life and different scenarios. And I think you just have to continue to stay active in it. And so that's that's mm-hmm. kind of for me how I – continue to to grow and challenge myself uh through the coaching education stuff because i know a lot of coaches get into this this realm with the the youth side and and your licensing stops at some point because you've already done done them all you know Mm -hmm. so i i have to kind of find different ways to continue to challenge myself because i've already Mm -hmm. done all the coaching education stuff and gone through that process so it's uh it's always staying concurrent you know current on what's going on yeah I think back to a, a basketball coach that I knew growing up that um, he won a, a state title here in PA mid to late 70s. And the offense <clears throat> and uh, the style of basketball he was playing was innovative mm-hmm. for the mid to late 70s, right? That never changed or evolved. Uh, you know, when I was in high school in the 90s and he ended up retiring, you know, early mid 2000s, never evolved. Still was mm-hmm. successful, right. you know, made playoffs and, mm-hmm. and things like that. but never had that success that was the the top of the mountain and you know and i get it it's really hard to have this sort of continuous you know Mm -hmm. string of success or whatever but i mean just that constant evolution and you know i I think you you guys nailed it when you said soccer junkie i mean i think to be in this business and to work at you know in this case at the division one level or in my case at the club level you have to be a soccer junkie right i mean i'm watching youtube clips i'm watching you know premier league when i can Um, and I think what I've come back to, so, so I have three kids, uh, so eight, two, and a newborn. Mm-hmm. And what I've come back to is that we all have 24 hours in the day. Yeah. How do I structure my day in a way that I can still be dad, be a good husband, but also fill this you know, burning desire to be a good soccer coach? Sure. And um, so, yeah, it's been moving and pivoting, and sometimes it's early mornings, yeah. you know, before everybody's up and moving around, or yeah. in some cases, it's late nights, you know, after You know, You know what, you're managing it just like you would ask your players to manage their time, aren't you? Mm-hmm. You know, as coaches, we have to learn to manage it. You, you have to have a, a plan to, yeah. to manage your time. And, yeah. you know, it's the same thing that we ask our players. They, they're going to class, in our case here, you know, going to class, and they're, you know, they, they, they have to put some individual work in, they got to put some study hours in, and, and yet they got to be at practice, and sure. you've just got to figure out a way to slot it in and, and to put it into your, you know, into your day. Um, I will say this about the evolving thing. Some folks might find this interesting, but we started playing, I took the Notre Dame job in 1999, 
and was there 14, 15 years before I left to go to the pros. And we've kind of built our way of playing out of a 4-3-3. Mm-hmm. But if you saw the way we were playing a 4-3-3 in 1999, to the way we're trying to play it here now at Pitt, it's night and day different. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's still out of the basic mm-hmm. shape of the team as our starting position, but the way we've evolved it in those 20 years, mm-hmm. 18 years has been amazing. We didn't just take mm-hmm. it and say, we're going to play this system like you were talking with the high school coach. We're not. It's we play the same system and we have the same attacking philosophy, but we've tweaked this and honed it and fine-tuned it over the years, and mm-hmm. still finding ways to to change it. And that's that's what I think coaches. You know, that's that's coaching to me mm-hmm. is evolving what you're doing with your players. I think adaptability is probably one of the most underrated things a coach can do. Yeah. Um, yeah, because uh, we'll all be dinosaurs yeah. if, if we stay the same. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, uh, a, a question that I ask everybody this will be uh, be our last question. Um, so, what's going right and what's going wrong in this country in terms of soccer? Wow, that's a, that's that's a whole podcast right there. <laughs> <laughs> that that, that, that might podcast. be two or three podcasts yeah. right there. <laughs> if I had that answer too, I may be a very wealthy person. Um, Gosh, and I don't know, because I kind of walked in on you guys' conversation before we started the podcast here, but, um, you know, first, I think the most glaring thing um, is the various league structures. I mean, there's there's three different platforms, in some cases, four different platforms with a DA, with ECNL, with USYS, and there's, you know, other evolving leagues with US Club Soccer and an EDP league now that's going on. Um, kind of on the, the eastern part of the country, so it's um, you know it's challenging from from that standpoint. Um, everybody trying to kind of find their their niche and their way, and I think this just there's so much money involved in the youth side of it. Um, you know, it's I don't see that changing dramatically. Now I wish it would almost go back full circle and everybody just play in USYS and uh, mm-hmm. you know go back to the old ways because. Uh, then you probably get a better idea of what your teams and clubs across the country are really doing stacked up against each other, but that's going to take a lot of people sitting in the same room agreeing to stuff, which I don't see happening. Um, but, too, I also think the structure piece of it, how structured we get, how early, you know, we don't have a whole lot of freedom of just going out and playing and kids kind of learning on their own or learning from older kids. And, you know, I think from the club side of things, everybody is, uh, we joked about it, but everybody's kind of a team builder, you know. And, and mm-hmm. I mean, even locally here, there's some guys that do some great job, you know, just in how they coach and manage their teams. Um, but, you know, I've always found it interesting if you have an outlier on a, a U12 team and you've got a kid that's dominating that league, why in the world aren't you playing them up in the U14s or the U16s or giving them a different challenge? And it doesn't even have to be, that you've permanently moved them to that team. It could be for, hey, for the next two or three months, we're putting this player here just to give them a different challenge or training with a boys team, you know, if, if you're a top female player or however however you can kind of present a different challenge. And I think we get so focused on this particular team and I've got to deal with this set of parents and, you know, it's how the clubs are structured. I'm an independent contractor. You're an independent contractor. If I take your two best players, I may affect my team, even though it may be better for those two players to move up. And so I think we're kind of in this team mode. I think if you can just grassroots-wise get back to the whole concept of it's really should be about the player 
and you know, and I, and I I look back at our own success at FC Dallas and how we did things. We we were a little bit more focused, and we had you could see a a real big shift if people started focusing more on that side of it. But I don't know if we're going to have all the answers to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that would be a good starting point, you know, for the clubs to start thinking about the individual player and how we can present different challenges. And it may be I have a competitive season and I know that's going to be more in the springtime so maybe my falls I can tinker and move players around a little bit more and those kinds of things so I'd like to see the clubs do more of those kinds of things I think that'd be very beneficial from grassroots on up mm-hmm. so, yeah. Yeah. I think um, you know I'd, I'd echo what Ben said and I think our, our youth system across the board is not effective the way it's operating now and whether you're Pro DA, Pro ECNL, Pro National League, Pro US Club, USY. I mean, all of the, the all the alphabets yeah. uh, <laughs> leagues that are out there. Whichever one that you support, you'll have an argument for that group. But a country with our resources and our size, we have to put egos, put the money aside, and figure out a way to come together. As, as a group to best push forward our best kids. For us to see the results at national team level, youth national teams, which we haven't been successful at no. in a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and even with, with the rest of the world, people keep saying, well, the rest of the world's catching up with our women. Well, I'm telling you, if you've watched France play and you've watched Holland play and some of the the, the 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 top teams around the world now we've been caught for a while yes right tactically mm-hmm. we're behind some of those teams we're still getting by with some athleticism mm-hmm. um, so I just think that I don't know that I have the answer for the structure in the youth league but I do know we can't continue to have players competing all over the place at all different kinds of levels week to week. Um, and push our best players forward in that method. I, I don't think it's the environment that, that they need. Um, I don't think the pay-for-play model works. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have an answer to it, and I don't have a solution to it because somebody's going to have to fund it, but the pay-for-play model doesn't work. And I, it doesn't work for a number of reasons, but in short, a couple of things I would say is the argument that we're losing good players to other sports or good players who can't afford it, there's truth to that but even beyond that it forces our coaches to be put under some pressures that they don't need to be put under as youth coaches mm-hmm. you guys your job should just be to develop your under 10 team mm-hmm. the best you can get maximize them at the time you have them and then as you say move them to the next coach who should do the same all player driven mm-hmm. that's the way it should be but what happens with a lot of clubs around the country is you're not winning enough, so you got to win. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, but I'm trying to play out of the back. Well, stop playing out of the back mm-hmm. because you're getting scored on every time you play out of the back, and you're losing games. Kids are going to leave the club, and it's partly a snowball effect because parents are that way too. Mm-hmm. You're not winning enough. That team across town's winning. I'm going to go. I want to play on the winning team. Mm-hmm. You know, so the understanding of true. We use the word player development all the time. But I don't think we really mean it all the time. It's player development as long as it's helping, you know, my team or my club. Yeah. But it's not player development when it doesn't help anymore. Mm-hmm. Player development, you know, is I mean, it, it 
it just comes with it. So I think it puts our coaches in some undue pressure where they're expected to win at U10s, U12s, uh, instead of going, no, my job is to develop them. It's not about winning trophies at that age. It's about developing that player. I think they have time when they get older to, to reach those successes. So I think the pay-for-play model is a, is a huge, huge issue. I don't really have a solution. But even beyond the youth level, I think having been involved with our U23, coaching our U23 national team for a while and being around our national team programs over the years, even a problem we have there, um, I think it's such a big country and the way we're now just sending scouts to ECNL and scouts to DA, number one, no disrespect because there are some good scouts out there, but some of the scouts that are out there have no proven track record of being able to recognize or haven't been at a level high enough mm -hmm. to recognize a difference of really a really elite player mm -hmm. versus just a good player. So I think staffing is a little bit of an issue. Um, I think the other piece of it is because we are so big, a lot of times with our youth national teams, you know, we have this camp and we're going to bring in 30 players. Then we're going to have two months later another camp. And you know what I'm bringing in? 10 of the same, but I'm going to bring in 20 new players because somebody else has spotted these. And the next thing you know, from camp to camp, you're doing that. And then all of a sudden, you're past a time of going, wait, i got a team to prepare for the U-17 World Cup. Mm -hmm. And I've been seeing a lot of players because I want to get the best players on that team. But while I've been looking at all of these players over the last year, I haven't really had a team to develop mm -hmm. the way I want my team to play. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, we're seeing a lot of kids, and it's a big country, and you want your best players there. But it's almost been detrimental because that's what we're doing. Every camp, we're looking at new players. So I've never really had my team to develop. That's why I always like the, the, the model that Spain has, even in a country that's what not, not even a third. I mean, it's so small compared to us. Mm -hmm. But they had the country divided into four regions, mm -hmm. and they have a national team in every age group in each of those regions. You know, and those national teams in each of those regions go off and play yeah. different international competitions. So if you're playing a U-17 national team of Spain, it may not be what the U national, what the national team that's playing in the U-17 World Cup looks like. Mm -hmm. It's just one of their four national teams that they've mm -hmm. sent off. Mm -hmm. And now they have a chance to have those teams together, more regional. The coaches that are scouting and know, they, they can identify those kids. They know those kids better. And... Kind of like our old ODP model years ago when we had the four regions. To me, that that's where we got the majority of our best players playing together years ago at our youth level because everybody in the region knew those kids a little better. And now we're just shuffling kids in and out of different camps mm -hmm. to hope we can latch on to the best 18 or 23 or whatever we're carrying on our roster. But there's no real prep time for those kids to really mm -hmm. prepare together for a year mm -hmm. to get ready for the World Cup. And so the big country causes us an issue. But we've got to be smart enough to figure out, do we divide this into four teams? Do we divide it in eight teams? Or how do we do this to better maximize our mm -hmm. top players' experiences? You know, if I've got f four regions now and I've got, 25 players in a, in a region that's going to make that regional national team or whatever and they stay active year round and they're getting quality training then when they come together and have their events then you can truly kind of pick the cream of the crop mm -hmm. and 
in each of those regions, players could filter in and out in each region. Mm -hmm. That's where you could kind of be changing mm -hmm. your rosters a little bit. But then whatever, a year out, eight months out, six months out, whatever it is to prepare for that World Cup, mm -hmm. now you bring that final selection together and you change that group. And I think if you do that, now all of a sudden you're actively working with a hundred of your best players year-round. Mm -hmm. As opposed to going, I'm going to bring 30 in this week. And then, but 20 of those don't make the next camp because I got 20 new ones. So you're not working and developing those players. They're in a camp, then they're not. They're out of a camp. You know. So I, I just think we're yeah. our, our organization and our youth level <clears throat> is not where it needs to be. And I don't uh, presume to hold all the answers to it, but I've been in it long enough to see that that's kind of our biggest problem. You and I talked a little bit about the German Federation and mm -hmm. and how how a player from one club. If they're in a lower division, we'll get moved to a player. It will get moved to a team mm -hmm. of another club from Schalke to Bayern. If Bayern's playing at a higher level in that age group, they want the kid to come first. So even if they move clubs, but it's all player driven. And right now it's not player driven. It's clubs and leagues that don't want to give up their power and they don't want the egos to be given up and you know and unfortunately there's money in it yeah so it's it's a difficult problem that the snowball got gradually bigger and bigger and bigger and now it's huge and and i don't know short of kind of blowing it up i don't know that it's going to change mm -hmm. um i hope it does at some point in time but uh i'm not sure yeah. well it's even difficult from a college coach perspective because the, the different leagues it's mm -hmm. you may go see a player and like a player but you know they're they're playing as a team where they're winning six or seven nothing and you know, you, you'd, you'd love to get the better teams playing each other more often. And, mm -hmm. and uh, with the different platforms, it makes it difficult. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a great question. I think it's always uh, good to, to discuss and talk about things like this. And it's just, uh, yeah, uh, don't know who has the, the final <laughs> say or the answer there. But, but yeah, I think a, a good start would just be focusing on the player and, and clubs promoting individual player success not so much team success mm. i think that 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 shift in focus in itself just that alone um you know i know club soccer's got recruitment to it but why can't you say you know hey look we've put these two kids in a you know a, a national camp or a national team and those are the kids we're promoting and that's how we attract our next you know tier of kids and at the next level versus going hey this team won state cup well, okay well what does that mean yeah you know well you yeah. know even leagues even league associations and state associations even have certain limiting rules now because yeah. when i grew up playing you know i played for my high school team but also played for my club team and then on the weekends on sundays my my coach my high school coach who happened to also be my club coach at the time yeah. put us in the mexican bandit league so i at 15, 16 year old, I'm also playing with adults, you know, mm -hmm. on, on the weekends. And yeah. and now it's like sometimes they, the rules don't allow you to move and shift players. And mm -hmm. um, so I, I think I think the money part has been great that we can get people livelihoods out of it. But I think the money piece of it has also created a little bit of an animal mm -hmm. uh, in it in that um, people aren't willing to give up what they have for the betterment of the game. It's like they're willing to go to a point, but then all of a sudden, 
wait, you're wanting my club to merge with another club because it makes perfect sense, yeah. but yet who's going to run it? Yeah. Now it's giving up my money. Well, yeah. now they're less inclined to do it. It's That's why I was saying it's about player development until to a point. And then all yeah. of a sudden, now it's not about player development. It's mm-hmm. it's about selfish things and, mm-hmm. and egos and that kind of thing. So a lot of issues. But having said all that, too, I do think we've got some great people in the sport, um, some great coaches and some people that really – uh, live and die for the game and, and breathe it and are passionate and and um, you know I just wish we could figure out a way to get everybody on the same page in a, uh, a town that is uh, American football crazy we're playing the best game in the world that's right that's, that's, that's right that's exactly right they just don't know it yet. They, 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 they don't know it you know and but the good thing about it is there's really is there's room for both yeah you know yeah, I love is. American football too yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. but there's room for both you know and we, we shouldn't be that that threat uh, you know it should just be embraced but uh, that that's that's for another story and another time too that's right uh, Randy and Ben if if folks want to connect with you or the uh, the pit women's uh, soccer journey in the program uh, how can they do that well me they can reach uh, just reach out by email it's rwaldrum at athletics.pit.edu um, I'm always happy to uh, to get back and help in any way I can they can follow me on Twitter and I think mine is just at Coach Waldrum and um, you know I'm pretty active on that uh, unfortunately that's about the only social media platform <laughs> I'm active on so uh, he's a big man, so, man U fan yeah, yeah, yeah a big man U fan yeah. so it's, it'd be a good breaking the ice point if you want to act like you're a man U fan <laughs> yeah. when you talk to me yeah. yeah but Ben can he's a little more uh, socially inclined sure, than sure. I am I, I may have one or two more platforms than he does <laughs> but uh, but yeah the e- email is always the easiest way it's uh, at athletics.pit.edu uh also, you can follow me on Twitter at BenWall21, I believe. Uh, I think it's the same Facebook and mm-hmm. tag and, and the same one for uh, for Instagram as well. So I'm pretty active on all those. So people can reach out and have questions. They can follow me, direct message me, or email me. Cool. Guys, thank you so much for your time. This was uh, very enjoyable, and um, what a pleasure just to meet, meet you both and uh, – Put names and faces and be in the same room together. Well, I love that you're doing yeah. this. I'm, I'm glad you started it and I've uh, been following them. So uh, good stuff and, yeah. and great to finally meet you too, Jason. Yeah. So thanks for having us. All right. Thanks for having us. Good deal. My sincere thanks to Randy and Ben Waldrum of the University of Pittsburgh for coming on the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast. I've mentioned in previous episodes that if you like this show or something about this show, please be sure to share it out on social media. And when you do that, tag me at SoccerCoachJB. And it could be an entire episode. It could be something a guest said, whatever it might be that inspires you in some way. Help more and more coaches, players, and people in the game that we all love find out about this podcast. And I can't thank you enough for your support thus far in uh, almost two seasons of hosting this show. It's been absolutely fantastic. This show is available on 11 different podcasting platforms. So whatever your favorite podcasting platform is, be sure to subscribe to the show because you don't want to miss bonus episodes like this one. Uh, And new episodes are available every Wednesday. We're pumping out a ton of content here in May, 
So make sure you subscribe to the show. And if you listen to this show on Apple Podcast, and judging from what Anchor, uh, the hosting site of this podcast, tells me, the majority of you listen on that platform. Go there now, leave a five-star rating and a brief review. It'll take you all of two or three minutes to do that. If there's something you like about the show, if there's something you like about the format, even just a five-star rating would go a really long way of helping other people in the game of soccer find out about this show. All right, so a new episode coming your way on Wednesday, and this week you're actually going to hear from a wide variety of guests. And one of the things that I would like to present to you, the audience, is sort of the sport psychology side of the game. And John Townsend and I recently had the chance to sit down with uh, Stu Singer of Well Performance, and he will be Wednesday's guest on the On the Touchline podcast. So look forward to that on Wednesday. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you guys real soon. This has been the On the Touchline podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. <laughs>